start off with uh, things that people are afraid of. Now, 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 kids, if you're younger than, you know, something like this or so, uh, what are some of the things that you think of that people are afraid of? What are some things that people are afraid of? How about, how about spiders? Are people afraid of spiders? Yeah, you know, I've been told there are only two kinds of spiders. There's only two kinds. There are round spiders and there are flat spiders. The, the, the round ones are bad and the flat ones are good. Now, the good news is you can take a bad spider and you can make it into a good spider. People are afraid of spiders, right? How about, how about snakes? Spiders and snakes. You know, there's even a song, I don't like... Yeah, you, you've heard it. How about mice? You, you're, you're, you're going downstairs in Chapman, down into the basement, just before you get the light on, you hear something scurry across... The floor in front of you, mice. We don't like spiders. We don't. People are afraid of snakes. People are afraid of mice, rodents. What about coyotes, raccoons? We're not afraid of coyotes and raccoons. You know, they're 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 kind of cute. They're furry. They're a little bit shy. But coyotes and raccoons, they eat snakes and mice, right? And don't corner a, a raccoon. Man, it will tear you up. It's funny the things we're afraid of, some of them a little bit even irrationally. Well, get your mind into the story of Daniel, the book of Daniel. And in Daniel, there are these three younger guys. They're just finishing school. They're, they're starting their first job. What might they be afraid of? They're taken away from home. They're in a whole new place. And their boss, the king, well, he's got a bit of a temper. Now, he's got this big thing going on. He's got a big, huge, kind of scary-looking statue. And he's got this huge, fiery furnace. And what the king does when he's mad at somebody, you know what the king does when he's mad at somebody? He throws them into the furnace. Now, you're working. You're just starting out your new job working for that guy. What might you be afraid of? A little heat? Well, these three that we're going to talk about today, they're not afraid of the king. They're not afraid of his furnace. They're, the thing that they're, they would be afraid of is not fearing the Lord their God, not honoring God, and not following their God in the way that they should. That's what scares them. And so they have determined that they're not going to be afraid of the king because they fear God, they honor God. And what I want to say is, the one thing that you ought to be afraid of, think of it this way in life, the one thing you could fear is not fearing God, not honoring God. Don't be afraid of what others might think. Don't be afraid of what others might say if you are following Jesus. Because if you follow Jesus, you're going to find like in the story, he'll be with you and he will look after you. He will He will. Make it show, I'm going to use the word vindicate, but he is going to show everyone that your faith in him was right all along, sooner or later. Okay? So you can, you can trust God, you can fear God. And when, you're, when you fear God, the psalm says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I be afraid? You fear God, you don't have to be afraid of anybody else. Because fear is a powerful thing. All of us know that. Small people, big people, we all know fear is a powerful thing. It, it moves us. It causes us to take actions. It, 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 it pushes us in decisions. 
It's a powerful force. So that Franklin, Franklin Roosevelt, former president, uh, coined the phrase, you've all heard it, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. In a time of great economic turmoil coming out of the Great Depression, how are we going to survive? And entering a, another world war, he says we have nothing to fear but fear itself. And I want to suggest a slight change to that. I want to suggest let's change that to be afraid of being afraid. That's Daniel chapter 3. The thing to be afraid of is being afraid when fear pushes you away from faith. In Daniel chapter 3, when pressured to go along with the crowd... When pressured to go along in a politically correct, intense environment, they stand firm in their faith. These three, they remain faithful through harsh persecution. And God is with them. The God who is with them is able to deliver them and vindicates their faith. That their faith in him will be shown to be right to everybody. In this case, sooner rather than later. Let's get into Daniel chapter 3. Be afraid of being afraid. Daniel chapter 3. So Daniel chapter 3 comes right after Daniel chapter 2, right? And Daniel chapter 2, who was afraid? The king was afraid. The king had a scary dream. In the king's scary dream, he had this statue, and it was gold and silver and bronze and iron, and then the toes were, were iron mixed with clay, and then a rock cut without hands from heaven falls down, and it smashes the toes, and it collapses the whole statue, and it turns into dust, and it's blown away like chaff, and it's gone, and the stone that fell from heaven grows into a kingdom that fills the whole earth. And Nebuchadnezzar says, what does this mean? And especially, what does it have to do with me? And Daniel came and he interpreted that dream, right? Daniel said, oh, king, this is the dream. He, he, he recites the dream to him. And then he says, king, you are the head of gold. God has given the rule of the world into your hands of all these people and nations. And yet after you will come another kingdom. What does that mean? The Nebuchadnezzar's own prayer to his gods that may he live forever and rule forever is not going to happen. His, his reign has a shelf life. It's going to pass, and another's going to come, and they're going to pass, and another's going to come. The only kingdom that will never end is the kingdom of God, which he will establish. That is coming, and he will reign forever and ever. So that was Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And so Nebuchadnezzar, in response to his dream, it seems in chapter 3, he says, I'm going to build an image. I'm going to build an image that everybody can see, not just the dream in my head on my bed. And so he builds a statue. And let's hear about it in Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. That's 90 feet by about 9 feet wide. Tall, skinny thing. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, this is a, this is a long, a, a very tall, 90 foot tall, about 9 foot wide. Now, don't think of it as a whole tall, skinny image of a man. This is not the world's, the world's tallest thin man. What this is, this is, this is probably a big pedestal, and on the pedestal is the statue, the image of a man. The point isn't what exactly the statue is or looks like. The point is it's all of gold. Now, it doesn't matter that it's solid gold or not. That's not the point. On the outside, at least in its plating, it is covered in gold because it is not 
gold, silver, bronze, iron, iron and clay, all collapsing. Daniel said, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Head of gold? Head of gold that another kingdom's going to come after me? I don't think so, says Nebuchadnezzar. He says, I'm going to make the whole thing out of gold. And my reign is going to last forever. And what God can stop me? So that's what he does. Now, why does he gather everybody together around his image? Remember in chapter 2, he was a little concerned. He was a little uncertain. Were his own counselors or his father's counselors, were they actually loyal to him or not? Or were they biding their time looking for an opportunity maybe even to replace him? And so, in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar is doing what would occur in large empires. The Assyrians did something like this 100 years earlier. It's a loyalty test. Everybody's going to gather around this image which represents Nebuchadnezzar and his rule and his reign and his kingdom. And when the band starts up, when the music plays, they're all going to bow and show allegiance and worship to him and his empire. That's what's going on here. So then... They're all gathered together, and this image recurs over and over, and all the people that are gathered recurs over and over, and music and worship and falling down occurs over and over in this first section. So in verse 4, the herald is going to proclaim aloud, you are commanded, O peoples and nations and languages. That sounds a little, sounds a little like Revelation 5, doesn't it? In a twisted sort of way. That when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigger, and the harp, the pipes, and every kind of music, you're going to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigger, and the harp, the pipes, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages, there it is again, fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, at this time, it seems there were some Chaldeans. Here's the cohort of the Chaldean counselors again, and they're kind of like the kid at the dinner table, that after the family has prayed, there's this one, this brother, he pipes up that his sister didn't have his eyes closed while they were praying, right? How did he know yeah, well, here they are. There's these Chaldeans, and instead of being busily bowing and worshiping themselves, they came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. We're with you on the whole statue of gold. We're with you, king, but you made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigger, and the hark, the pipes, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image and whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Right? That's what you said. There are certain Jews whom you appointed. Oh, that was a bad move, king. You should have checked with us. Over the affairs of the province of Babylon, this Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these men, O king, they pay no attention to you. They, not, they do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And Nebuchadnezzar is furious. Again. He seems to have a temper problem. He seems to be a little unstable. It's going to go into a lot unstable next week. But, but, but he's a little on the edge here. And Nebuchadnezzar flies into a rage again. He's infuriated that some are not passing his loyalty test. These who had nothing that he, he, he took and he raised up and he put in a high position. And they would not be loyal to him? In a furious rage, he commanded them to come and be brought before him. And they brought them. And Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready, he doesn't, he, he, he doesn't take the word of the report and throw them immediately into the furnace. He's going to give them another go. Okay, this is it. This is your opportunity. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the pipes, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. That'll be fine. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And here's the point. Who is the God who is able to deliver you out of my hand? That's the question. I'm in control here. I am the God of this moment. You answer to me and nobody else. And what God is there? What God could there be? Nebuchadnezzar says, who can deliver you out of my hands. Huh. Oh, well, that's, that's actually, that's pretty easy. We've got this, king. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Maybe what they're saying there, in fact, is, King, you already know. You already were addressed by the Most High God. You know who is the God who is able to deliver you out of, deliver us out of your hands. We don't need to answer you on this. But if this be so, if this is your determination, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And even if he doesn't, oh, we just sang that. Even if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have made up. We know our God can. We know he is able. And he can just say the word. And even if he doesn't, if he chooses not to for his own purposes, we are not going to bow to an image instead of to him. We're, the only thing we're afraid of is being afraid. The only thing we, we fear is not fearing our God, who is the only true God. Now, where did they come up with that boldness? Where did they get that from? I, I, I think there's some Old Testament background that we should remind ourselves of, that why they are told they don't have to fear. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12 to 14. Do not call a conspiracy. This is Isaiah addressing King, King Ahaz when he's, when he's afraid of, a Syri- of an invasion from Israel and from Syria. So he's, he's going to get the Assyrians to help him. He's going to pay them off. Do not call a conspiracy what people call a conspiracy. Don't fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Don't fear what other people fear. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor is holy. Let him be your fear. When we say, when we say fear the Lord, we don't mean be afraid of Jesus. We don't mean look out because Jesus might be coming for you. That's not what we mean. When we say fear the Lord, what we mean is this. Honor him as holy. Honor the Lord as unique, as the only, as the preeminent one. There is none like him. That's what we mean when we say fear the Lord. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary. Isaiah 51, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of a man who dies, of the son who, of man who is made like the grass? Why would you fear them? They're, they're here and they're gone. Just like Nebuchadnezzar will be here and gone, and the one who comes after him will be here and gone, and the bronze will be here and gone. Fear the Lord. One more verse. 
Jeremiah. Now, this one may have been particularly been of, of, of strengthening to these young guys because this, this was an early exchange when Jeremiah is a young guy called to be a prophet. How can I do that, he says. I said, ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And where, whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. You fear him. You don't have to fear any, any, anybody else. So that's, that's their confidence. That's, their, that's their, their decision here. And so what does Nebuchadnezzar do? Well, he flies into a rage, and he has his, his officers from the army tie them up in strong bonds and in their coats and their caps and everything and f- heat the furnace seven times hotter than it normally is. It, they heat it up so... Now, it d- doesn't actually go... The furnace doesn't go seven times hotter where if it was 1,000 degrees, now it's 7,000 degrees. That's not possible. But much hotter than it normally was is the idea behind the phrase. And that is, so it's so hot, and the blast out of it is so hot that when the, when the soldiers who are tasked with taking these guys all bundled up and tossing them into the furnace, it's so hot that their lungs are scalded and they die. They are overcome by the heat and the flames from the furnace just getting close enough to throw the other guys in. Well, what happens to the other guys? Let's jump into the story again here. Let's see, we're in... Chapter 3, roundabout verse 24. They've just tossed him into the fiery furnace, and Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, these Chaldean clowns, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they said, well, let's see. There was Shadrach, there was Meshach, there was ben- Yeah, there were three kings. There were three. He said, but look, I see four men unbound loosed of their bonds, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Who could that be? Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. That's the one. That's the one he was asking about. That's the one who's able to deliver them out of the king's hands. The most high God. It's the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the most high God. Come out here. Come here. And they came out. Okay. It sounds so normal. It sounds like, you know, okay, we're done here. We'll go on back out of the furnace now. And everybody gathers around, the governors and the officials and everybody, and they gather around. They see that the fire has had no power over the bodies of these men. Their, their, their skin is not melted off. This is good. The hair of their heads is not singed. They have all of their eyebrows. And their clothing, their hat, their coat doesn't even smell like smoke. It's amazing. The presence of God with them and around them, shielding them so that all that the fire does, the only power that the fire has is to actually burn the bonds and release them and set them free. When you fear nobody else except for God alone, you are now free to follow him fully. That's part of what's here. So, 
Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Oh my. He says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and said, We must obey God rather than men, and yielded up their bodies. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. And they did. Rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language, there's that Revelation 5 thing again that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and their houses and ruins. There's no other God who is able to deliver like this. No other God who is able to deliver out of my hands, he could have said, like this. And the king, instead of executing the three, he promoted the three in the province of Babylon. Better get on this God's good side. That's what's going on with Nebuchadnezzar at the moment. But what's going on with these three? How could they be confident that, that what, what else in their background that they knew of God could have helped prepare them for this moment? That the Lord would not only deliver them, but he would even be with them. Look at Genesis 26. I've got a handful more verses we can put back up here. Genesis 26, there it is. This first one is, is a promise reiterated to Isaac when he is going through difficult times. He's got to redig the wells in the middle of an almost desert that have been filled in because the people around him don't want him there. We don't want your kind around here. And God says to him, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Later on to Jacob, who's fleeing because of his own deception, his own sin, his own schemes. He has to flee from home and go, go stay with his uncle, who is even more of a rascal than he is. And God says to him along the way, behold, I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Isaiah 41. Fear not, I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, yea, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right arm. That's the promise they had. That's the God that they knew who would be with them to uphold them. And that's exactly what they experienced. You know, there's an overall pattern here in Daniel chapter 3. There's an overall pattern. In the first 18 verses, you have over and over again the image of Nebuchadnezzar, the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar made, the, the, uh, the music of, the, of all the pipes and the, and the trigons and the um, lyre and the harp and everything, and you have bow down and worship. You have image 11 times in those first 18 verses the image Nebuchadnezzar had made. You have the music going to be playing and that everybody needs to bow down and worship. You have those together 11 more times. The image and the worship of the image are the big deal in the first 18 verses. The next section from verse uh, 19 on to through 25, you have fiery furnace, fiery furnace, fiery furnace, fiery furnace, furnace, fiery furnace, over and over again. That's the emphasis of the second section. And then you turn to verse 26, and all of a sudden you have the emphasis repeated. See, there's repetition in this chapter, and it's on purpose. And the repetition in the third grouping is all about the true God. And the focus is no longer Nebuchadnezzar. The focus is not his image. The focus is not on his false worship. The focus is on the honoring of the true and living God. God is vindicated. 
what's going on here? There, there is a political correct pressure toward the idolatry of the day. And when it's resisted, there is a fiery price to pay. And yet, God will vindicate their faith. Let me say it another way. There is a push toward idolatry. And that leads to a fiery trial. And yet, out of that fiery trial, there is a renewed focus on the one true God. That is going to be the experience of the exile. Israel goes into exile in Babylon because of their penchant for idolatry. They leave exile with this being addressed. They are no longer followers of idols and false gods. They've got other issues that are going to continue. But Israel leaves Babylon sick to their stomachs of idols. They've had enough. They've had their fill of it, not wanting to see another one. And they're restored into the land and rebuild their temple. And under the leadership of Nehemiah and Esther, or, or Nehemiah and Ezra, there is this stirring again into the worship of the one true God and devotion to him and fearing him only. So it's the story of the exile here in Daniel chapter 3. At the start of the exile, God is giving them a picture of what this is going to accomplish. Not only that, this is the story of God's purpose through this world order that's leading to a tribulation period. The idolatry of our age and the worship of the creator or the creation rather than the creator will culminate in the serving of an antichrist and his image in God's temple, which will lead to a terrible time, a fiery trial on earth and a tribulation period, which is most of the book of Revelation. And then we will come to chapter 19. And Jesus comes. In chapter 20, and the enemy is bound and cast into a pit. And Jesus reigns for a thousand years. And there's a great white throne of judgment. There's a new heaven and a new earth where only righteousness dwells. And we will be with the Lord forever. And the focus from 19 forward is on lifting up and giving ourselves to the worship of the one and only true God. Daniel chapter 3 is a microcosm. It's a little analogy. It's a little metaphor of God's moving through history, and it's our experience in life. What do I mean it's our experience in life? When you follow Jesus in doing what he said instead of giving in to the pressure and the bullying of the idolatry of the age, when you follow Jesus in doing what he has said to do, you may be persecuted for it. You will pay a price for it, but God who is with you is able to protect you, and he will vindicate your faith. Did you get that? Let's go through it one more time. This is important. When you follow Jesus in doing what he has said, you may be persecuted for it. You will pay a price for it, but God who is with you is able to protect you and vindicate your fear, vindicate your faith in him, your fear of him. Be afraid of being afraid that gets in your way of following Jesus. That's Daniel chapter 3. You see, how did this happen? Nebuchadnezzar focuses on part of what God has said. Daniel said, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. 
Nebuchadnezzar says, well, I like that, but I don't want to just be the head of gold. I want this thing to continue. I want my thing to last, so I want the whole statue to be of gold. So, so, so Nebuchadnezzar just takes a, a part of what God has said and runs with that and ignores all the rest. We can be in danger of doing that. But God loves me. I'll go off and do what I please now because God loves me. And I forget his call to come and be with me. And I don't really pay attention to that part of the call that says, come and die and give yourself for others. I like a God of mercy and grace. I'm not so sure about this whole idea of of judgment. I like the future, God's kingdom and streets of gold. I'm not so sure. I'm not really on board with that whole lake of fire thing and great white throne of judgment that people are going to face because they have rejected Jesus who loved them and died for them by choosing to spurn and reject God's provision for them in his own son. But still, it's too harsh to actually, you know, have them face God's judgment. I'm not sure that I like that. We, we pick and choose. And when we, like Nebuchadnezzar, choose the part of what God has said that we're going to emphasize and ignore the rest, we are putting ourselves in judgment of what God has said. We are back in Genesis 3, listening to the enemy's lies and determining what from what God has said we're going to believe and what we're not. That is not fearing God. That is fearing other things instead, even if it's our own understanding. The question here was put, in, put by one of the guys in our Monday morning Bible studies. We're going through the, the passage that, 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 that's in this week. And he said, really, there's a question here about is God, is God prominent or is the Lord preeminent? You see, Nebuchadnezzar knew about God. He'd already been introduced. Daniel had come, and Daniel, was, Daniel had the God who could answer the dreams. Daniel was, Daniel's God was prominent in Nebuchadnezzar's thinking. But Nebuchadnezzar himself was preeminent. What he wanted to do was the final trump card. That's what mattered more than what God had to say about the matter. God was prominent to Nebuchadnezzar. God was not preeminent. But to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or rather to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, God was preeminent. Nebuchadnezzar and his commands then were merely secondary. That's the difference. Whom shall I fear? What will I be afraid of? What are you afraid of? Well, tonight, I I see we're all wearing masks, so I'm thinking one of the things we're afraid of now is COVID-19, this pandemic that we're in the midst of, right? We're afraid of getting ourselves. We're afraid of giving to somebody else. Well, there's, there's something there to fear. There's a danger there, but it's funny. I was reading something this week that, that, that suggested that the people who are most afraid are the people who are actually least vulnerable. This is interesting. There was a, there was a, a study that was reported on. It was done, but now this wasn't done by Clark College. This, no, nothing against Clark College. I, all you penguins out there, please don't send me letters. Okay. What is the, it's the, it's the penguin, it's Clark College fight dance. The, the, so, <laughs> this is a study done, similar institution to Clark College, Harvard. Harvard and Oxford and, the, 
and a, and a university in Milan, they got together on this, on this study, this survey, and they, the, one of the things they did is they questioned people in different demographics, asking them this question. For people like you, for a thousand people who are like you in your demographic, your background, people like you, a thousand of them, how many do you think will die from COVID in the next nine weeks? You know, kind of pressing close, or imminent danger of COVID here. Now, those who are age 18 to 34, that age demographic, you know what they said? Out of 1,000, probably 20 of us will die in the next nine weeks from COVID. 20 of you? That's 2%. Well, it's interesting because the actual infection rate of people in the 18 to 34 demographic, the actual infection rate that they should be afraid of, the percentage chance that they had of getting the disease was 0.05%. If I'm reading it right, that's not 5 in 1,000. That's 5 in 10,000 would even get the disease, or half of one of those people in that sample of 1,000 would even get the disease. How many would die from the disease in the next nine weeks? 0.0006%. But their fear of 20 out of 1,000, their fear was exponentially greater than the reality. Converse to that, they asked people 70 and over, and they said out of 1,000, probably 10 people. They said 1% of people like me in my age demographic will die in the next nine weeks. Now, that's closer to the actual infection rate, not the death rate. Everybody that's over 70 doesn't die from it. But the actual infection rate, their, their estimate was closer to the reality. Why is it that the millennials would be so far, would, who is their, 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 their level of expectation of danger, their level of fear, why was it so much higher than their actual real vulnerability? How could that be? Where did that come from? It comes from this. It comes from what information you're receiving. And information that comes via this mean, means is typically going to be more sensationalistic, more urgent, more click-compelling. Okay? More click-compelling. What do I mean by that? If I can give you a message on here that makes you afraid, this is something you're going to have to keep on top of. You're going to have to come back to that. Because if it's happy news, if it's, hey, things are great, don't worry, I don't need to come back and check in again and find out, what's the risk? What's happened? Am I even in more danger? Am I going to be safe? But if I, can, if I can scare you, you'll come back to find more. And every time I can get you to come back, every time I can get you to click, that's advertising revenue for me and my website. Folks, that's how news media, especially popular news medias like MSN or Yahoo, etc., that's how they function. They make money because you click there. If they can compel you to click there, and making you afraid is a great way to do it. And so where we get our news from compels us to what we're afraid of. That's the point. What are you taking in? What, what do you hear that causes you to fear? What are you afraid of? Maybe you're afraid of being canceled. Maybe you're careful about what you say because if you say or post or like the wrong thing, that... that 
that people are going to hate you. Not only that, they're going to they're going to unfriend you. They're going to cancel you. They're going to come out against you in mass. They're going to they're going to overwhelm you. Um, depending on where you work, you might be fired from your position because of something that you put or liked on Facebook. So you're afraid to get involved, and you're afraid to say anything at all. But if you make God preeminent, then others have to become less imminent. Others have to become less significant. When God is preeminent, his pleasure matters more than other pain or loss. And I'm not saying then you can be careless about what you say and you can be harsh and critical and so on. I'm saying then you'll be careful about what you say, not for the fear of making other people mad at you, but for the fear of not communicating them to them well or rightly, this is what our God is like. I don't want to misrepresent him because they need to know him. You probably heard the Jim Elliott quote, he is no fool who gives or risks what he cannot anyway keep in order to gain that which he can never lose. I paraphrased it. You know, I've been around, one of the things we're afraid of is dying. But I've been around people dying. And one of the things I've observed is they always leave their wallet behind. Every time. They leave their wallet behind. They leave their credentials behind. They leave their memberships behind. They leave their Facebook friends behind. They leave their physical life behind. Everything stays. And hopefully, in faith in Jesus, they are with the Lord. He is no fool who gives what he can't keep anyway. To gain what he cannot lose, which is the pleasure of the Lord. Well done. We might be afraid to reveal our own guilt, our shame, our weakness, our failings because of what others will think of it. But if God is preeminent, then what God thinks of me is most important and he loves me. He loves me so much that he gave his son for me. That as I confess my sin, he, will, he is faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me. And he urges me to gather with others and to confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed, that you may be strengthened, that you may walk uprightly. We need not to hide. We need to have somebody. We need to have people around us. We need to have small groups. We need to have a, 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 close, a close, trusted companionship that we can walk together with, that we can disciple together with, that we can be open with, that we'll pray for one another, we'll confess to one another. We know each other's weaknesses, so we will uphold and strengthen and encourage one another. We need that. We may be afraid of failing. And so we don't try. Maybe I, 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 would try, I would serve in this way. You know, I'd try to speak a word for the Lord here, but I'd probably just blow it. And so I do nothing because I'm afraid of my own inability. But casting into that furnace had nothing to do then with their ability. There was nothing those guys at that point could do for themselves. Their hands were tied. But... He says, I am with you. I am with you. Do you remember that pattern? There was a pattern in Daniel chapter 3 I pointed out earlier. There's pressure, there's trouble, and there's vindication of your faith. 
Well, there's a pattern in the Lord's call upon us, in the Lord's commission of us in Matthew 28. It looks something like this. In Matthew 28, there is all right at the top the sovereignty or the preeminence of our God. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, to do all the things that I've said. We say that this way in our mission as a church, to go to people around you. Go to going to others around us, bringing others into God's family by believing in Jesus and connection with others, and, and to build one another up as followers of Jesus. That is our mission. That's the mission he gave us that's, that comes underneath his sovereignty, all authority. He is preeminence who calls us to this, and this is the confidence, the assurance that he gives us. I am with you. Always, even unto the end of the age. So what do we have to be afraid of? The only thing we have to be afraid of is being afraid. Let's pray. Father, we, we do ask, Lord, that you would give us courage. Father, that you would, you would cause us to trust you for what you call us to do. That you would cause us to, to, to fear you as holy and unique, as other, as none like you, to honor you as our Lord and our God and our Savior, and thus to trust you as you are worthy of being trusted. So that because we believe you, we're cautious even about what others we believe. Lord, because we be determined to fear and honor you, we will not fear others. Lord, give us courage for what you'd have us to do. Lord, give us courage for what you'd have us to say. Father, that today, this afternoon, before people around us, Lord, even how we talk about the things that are going on in our world, in our, in our community, Lord, the, the things that we do and choose concerning the virus around us and our fears or our worries, Lord, let us take those first to you and run them through that filter of our faith in you. And out of that, Lord, would you, would you cause us, Lord, in how we follow you, how we fear you, to lift up your name, to give worship and honor to the one whose rule will not simply be followed by another, but, Lord, to the one who reigns forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.